Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is music and digital media consultant Rick Getz. First of all, I was checking out a very interesting website called The 50 States of Music. And you can go see it as well, 50statesofmusic.com, all one word. But what it looked at is what music contributes to the state GDP, gross domestic product, as well as how many jobs and how many businesses in the music business, royalty recipients and songwriters are in each state. First of all, what I found really interesting is they totaled everything up and found out that the music business means $143 billion to the United States gross domestic product. That's a whole lot more than you would think. There are 1.9 million total jobs in the music business in the United States. There are 157,000 music businesses in the United States. 142,000 royalty recipients, and 1.1 million songwriters. So music is a lot bigger than most people think, me especially. I never thought those numbers would be that high. But then this website allows you to drill down to each state and look at what each one contributes. And I found that really amazing, actually, because if you look at the top five there are some that you pretty much know where they're at, but not really. For instance, the biggest contributor to the music business in the United States is California, $38 billion, 450,000 music jobs, 40,000 music businesses, and there's about 193,000 songwriters just in California alone. Next comes New York, and New York, there's a big drop-off, surprisingly enough. It contributes $20 billion to the gross domestic product of the state, 224,000 jobs, 18,000 businesses as compared to 40,000 in California, and there's about 107,000 songwriters. Now it drops way off to number three, and I would have thought that Tennessee was going to be there because, well, Nashville, of course, but guess what? Number three is Texas, and that comes in at $6.5 billion that the music business contributes to the Texas economy. There's 8,000 music businesses there, and 120,000 jobs, and about 88,000 songwriters. Next comes Tennessee, with $5 billion that the music business contributes to the Tennessee economy. Only 62,000 jobs, that's about half of Texas. 6,000 businesses, and this is amazing, 55,000 songwriters, as compared to Texas, with 88,000, and California at 193. So what we're seeing here is the fact there's a really, really big drop-off. And in Nashville, yes, that's still the center of country music, and it's still the center of so much music in that part of the country, but it's not as big as I would have thought. Now, what's the smallest music economy in the United States? That's Wyoming, $43 million. Most other states are in the billions of dollars that the music business generates. There are only 695 music jobs there, 117 music businesses, and only 759 songwriters. Surprisingly enough, there's 759. I would have thought that would have been a lot lower. The big takeaway here is California has great weather and it has a lot going for it. It has the fifth largest economy in the world, and it also has the biggest music economy in the United States by far. So this is a good place to be. 
for a lot of reasons. I'm pretty glad that I moved here a long, long time ago from the East Coast. If for no other reason, just for the weather, but honestly, the music business here can't be beat. So if you're considering a job in the music business, being a songwriter, a career around music, this is the place to be. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, this is a great story, and it's something that you wouldn't expect, but given where this happened, maybe so. A television engineer, technician, Elliot Curtis, who worked at KPIX Channel 5 in San Francisco, was asked to come in to fix a vintage Buchla Model 100 synthesizer at Cal State University. Now, the university had bought this synthesizer in the 1960s because they wanted to keep up with technology at the time. But it's since fallen into disrepair, so it kind of sat in the corner for years and years, and no one used it. The tech comes in, starts to play around, finds some crystal residue underneath one of the knobs, and all of a sudden goes on an acid trip for nine hours. And it turns out, after they analyzed what this was, It was LSD. (laughs) So it was LSD residue that was on this synthesizer knob. And of course, that can be absorbed through the skin. You don't have to eat it or anything like that, although that's how it was done in the past. But wow, it turns out an LSD trip from trying to fix a synthesizer. Now, they couldn't really track down the source of this because the two professors who purchased this synthesizer way back in the 60s had passed away. And there were no records of repairs or anything else. So (laughs) they didn't know where it came from, but he had a very interesting nine hours of his life. So I guess that just goes to show you, if you're going to buy a vintage anything from the 60s that came out of San Francisco, you should treat it with kid gloves or plastic gloves at least. My guest this week is Rick Getz, who's been a major label A&R representative, a music supervisor, an artist manager, a bass player, and a record label owner. He's worked for Lava Atlantic, Electra, and EMI, with projects by artists that include Kid Rock, Matchbox 20, and Sarah Brightman, and he's worked on television shows including Sesame Street and Psychic Detectives. Since leaving the major labels in 2007, he's handled music clearances and major marketing campaigns for a wide range of artists, starting from young, local, and aspiring bands to multi-platinum international superstars. In recent years, he's also been a guest speaker at South by Southwest, the Recording Academy, CMJ, and the New Music Seminar. In the interview, we talked about the transition from being in a band to suddenly working at a record label, if radio is an effective promotional tool anymore, marketing the playlists, how physical products actually fit in with the new artist, and much, much more. I spoke with Rick via Skype from his office in New York. I want to go back to the beginning, um, how you got in this crazy business. A bunch of kids in high school came up to me and said, we're a punk band and we need a bass player. I, I guess they thought that my father could afford a bass. And... Uh... <laughs> 
they uh, <laughs> they said we really need a bass player, and I I went out and got a bass because that sounded like a good idea, and uh, I started playing and played through high school. Uh, went to uh, NYU and started playing quite a lot. Um, I was very fortunate. I, I worked with a lot of musicians who went on to do really great things. One in particular uh, engineered the Amy Winehouse record, uh, the big one. And uh, yeah, it was it was that uh, experience that led me to getting an internship at Atlantic. And I thought, well, this is my chance to get in with these uh, with these guys. I'll get my band signed because I'll, I'll know them and they'll I'll be so thrilled with my band, which, you know, looking back on it <laughs> is laughable. Um, but um, I wound up being there and my band broke up two days later and I put all of the energy I'd put into being the guy who wrote the set lists and the guy who booked the gigs and generally the business person of a seven piece band into uh, being a record label employee. Um, and I came up through the A&R department at uh, a company, a, a subsidiary of Atlantic at the time called Lava. And um, it was a four-person company when Matchbox 20 and Kid Rock and Sugar Ray and a whole bunch of other huge artists broke. So I really got to meet the world that way. And when you couldn't get anybody important on the phone, you end up getting me <laughs> at, at 22 or whatever. So I, I signed a few artists, one with Ahmed Erdogan, which was unbelievable, a swing band, and nobody knew more about swing than the guy who lived through it the first time. And um, left for a significant job offer at Electra, and didn't didn't have too many hits on my own. I, I was associated with a couple of big acts, but in terms of things I brought in and worked on exclusively, I didn't have a lot of um, a lot of huge artists that I could point to as solely mine. And when uh, Electra downsized, I uh, I wound up freelance, and through a couple twists and turns, I wound up putting together a consulting practice where I outsourced the marketing functions that they were doing for independent artists. And um, I've been running a label services company before they called it label services. And that's more or less where you find me today. Let's go back to the label portion for a little bit. There's some things I'm curious about not having ever worked at a label. There's a big jump between mentality jump between being a musician and suddenly working for a record label how did that work for you? Were you suddenly smacked with the new reality or was this something that gradually came upon you? I, I don't know that when, I mean, I, I think I showed up at the label, I was 21 years old and in my junior year in college. And the minute I met um, the guy who ran Lava, a guy named Jason Flom, I, all I wanted to be was an A&R guy. Cause that's, I mean, are you kidding me? Like I get to listen to music, have an expense account, run around and meet bands. I mean, I, I was doing that anyway. And they're going to send me a paycheck for it. Uh, as far as like culture shock, I mean, I don't know. I certainly would have it if I was an older musician and I got into the comfortable groove. I mean, I, I was never a pro musician. I was somebody who was paid to perform, but I, I, you know, didn't make a living at it. So I guess I just thought at the time that that was what jobs looked like. I mean, ironically, it was uh, far and away the most unusual job I've, I've ever held you know, now being in the workforce for, uh, I guess, 25 years. But um, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it was a weird culture. It felt like, it felt like second college. I mean, everybody was running around and not that I want to tell tales out of school, but you know, people drank too much and people, people acted like teenagers in a lot of ways. And it was, it was quite a bit of fun. What's the one thing that people don't know about 
working for a record label? And I'm sure there's probably lots of things, but is there one thing that you wish they knew? I think what people don't realize is um, being signed to a record label is like getting into college. You can you can still flunk out. And I saw far too many bands that were dominating their local market come in and 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 you know just exhale this this huge sigh of relief that you know they had made it and things were going to happen for them. And in fact. It certainly puts resources at your uh, disposal, but it just never replaced your own efforts. As a matter of fact, there is almost no marketing that you can do as as an outsider that will really be as effective as an artist shaking somebody's hand uh, in in some ways. I mean, obviously, a half a million dollar radio campaign changes things a lot quicker, but there are certain things an artist can do that makes make uh, lifelong fans that being... uh, part of an organization like a major label just doesn't doesn't replace and, and people forget that I think more than anything else. You know, you just mentioned a radio campaign, but is that really the way to go these days since the audience that matters doesn't seem to be listening to radio. So is something like that effective anymore? It's it certainly moves the needle. There's certainly top forty radio. If you're talking about a band that has five or six markets and um, is underground hip hop or alternative rock or you know AAA, then it doesn't always make sense. Um, it's certainly not something I recommend to artists early in their career. But there are few things, at least in my experience, that take a mid to upper mid tier artist and make them huge without without some kind of radio component. It's just it's still. It's still enormously influential, and I, and I forget that all the time because I'm in New York and you know I, I walk everywhere, so I don't listen to the radio and, and like most people do because I'm not in the car. But you know, satellite radio and radio, regular radio still move the needle, I, I believe. You know, what's interesting is I grew up in Pennsylvania. I still go back there to see family every now and then, and I can't believe how stuck in the past radio is, the local radio. You would think it was still 1977 there when you turn the radio on. It just has not changed. And I think to myself, I wonder if this is typical of other areas, small areas like this that have the 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 watt stations, local stations. And if so, then how effective is it really when it comes to new music? I think I think it varies. I think it's much less likely now that somebody breaks out of a tertiary market by one DJ championing uh, them. But at the end of the day, and it's, I, I guess, counterintuitive for me to say this as a marketing person, but no, no matter how much you expose an artist to an audience, people either friend, tell their friends or they don't. So, you know, I, I, I think it can happen. I don't think it happens as often. And Spotify's algorithm, because, you know, the holy grail or, or new radio seems to be playlists, but Spotify's algorithm sort of finds these indicators of interest that suggest whether there's going to be virility, and that's how things sort of rise there, and a, a lot of programming happens. But like I said, uh, people either tell their friends or they don't. People either put things in their playlists or they don't. Well, let's go to playlists for a second because how powerful they are these days. But that being said, it's like the old days of radio because it's very difficult to get on a influential playlist. So as a marketer, how, how do you approach that? You know, it's, it's really complicated right now. I knew, and I don't know this firsthand and every music business executive in the world thinks I'm out of my mind for even saying the world word out loud. But 
I heard somebody use the word playola for, you know, not buying streams, but influencing playlist ads. And the minute I heard that, I knew, you know, meet, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Um, it's very, it's very similar. There are a lot of people out there who are doing campaigns targeting third party playlist owners. Um, and I, I'm grateful for them, for my clients because lobbying Spotify's editorial team, uh, as somebody who does not have the leverage of a giant catalog is, uh, extraordinarily difficult. It's not to say that it can't be done, but it is such a small amount of, you know, uh, people that have a relationship with an editor that's so strong that they can just get them anytime they want. Um, and more and more I'm told they're relying on statistics. They're looking at what is submitted. Um, I, I guess most people probably know by now, but, uh, formal editorial submissions go through, uh, the artist portal artist.spotify.com and people are actually reading that and that goes to different editors. And, um, yeah, it's 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 very difficult to pursue editorial as uh, an independent artist, but so we're relying uh, a lot to start out on third-party playlists and teeing up not first releases usually, but second and third releases for the algorithmic playlists, the release radars, and the Discover weeklies. Ah, interesting. Okay, so the first release basically establishes the base, and from there you can jump off. My experience is it's easier. That's not to say that, you know, I, I've watched artists with no pedigree whatsoever that somebody submitted through the portal that, you know, New Music Friday just decided that they liked it and picked it up. People really do win on MTV. I mean, you know, there's things like that happen, but they're an anomaly. And that TV joke, nobody, nobody under like, nobody under 30 is going to know what the hell that meant. Yeah, right. Okay, well... Let's talk about what you do. You have musicconsultant.com. I do. So essentially, uh, as you said, you're supplying label services, and that was before anybody really talked about what label services were. Is, is this something that you have in-house that you provide, or do you go out to third parties like, uh, like a label, for instance, and pull in their resources? Well, there's an enormous talent pool out there since um, labels have changed and expanded and contracted and um there's nothing but talent out there but what my company does is a lot more hands-on than um some of the hybrid label services distribution companies out there your stems your awols your one rpms we're we're actually in the business the simplest way of putting it is building a custom label around people so people come to us they have a budget they retain us to sort of quarterback or be the rental that's a silly way of putting it, to be the um, the CMO of their own personalized record labels. So rather than having a label that has a specialist in metal when you're, uh, you know, uh, a top 40 act, we hire out appropriately the, the press and in some cases radio and we handle an advertising budget and social media. And we work a lot with artists who have different aspects of those things covered internally, but we supplement what they need. And we don't pull from other labels. We don't have any formal relationship with other label, labels, um, except sometimes they white label our services. Sometimes they pull us into their label as, as consultants, and we don't really discuss the particulars because it's better if it seems like it's coming from them. Yeah, sure. Sometimes management companies, sometimes publishers. But yeah, uh, more and more those companies have, have things in-house or through the distributor. 
Okay, so it's been my experience that even though artists these days are definitely more tech-savvy and they're hipper to social media, it doesn't necessarily mean they know how to use it to market. And even though there's plenty of resources out there and, and there's lots that you can learn, you know, artists want to be artists when it's all said and done. How have you found it with artists? What do you have to supply mostly to them, just to, in terms of marketing? Well, you know, it's it's a funny thing. I've given away uh, without relationships, which of course I'm I'm you know fairly territorial over. I've given away a vast majority of the information I have online through blog posts and and podcasts like this and whatnot, but. There's there's definitely a motivation problem, or at least a self-starting problem, or you know, and, and that's not to say artists are lazy. I'm not saying that at all, but just sometimes having somebody who's not in between your own ears, sometimes having an external force to just say like, no, actually you're right about this, and you better do it quickly. I mean, I'm I'm hired to be a coach in some ways. I'm hired to you know chase somebody around on the soccer field so they run faster. So with social media, like. Artists know. They, they know they have to document their process. They know they have to be interesting, which is no small feat. You know, uh, here's my breakfast, of course, doesn't work. But, you know, this is me recording the same guitar part 55 times in a row doesn't work either. So I think other than the people I hire and other than making sure things happen in tandem and making sure things happen in an orderly fashion that maximizes exposure... I think what I most have to convey is that every social media post is a still still image in a movie, and you have to have a whole movie. I mean, social media now makes it the 24-7 you channel, and um, that's really hard for CNN to populate, let alone an individual or a handful of people in a band. But all that being said, it still means that there's a certain amount of do-it-yourself involved, regardless of how much you do. Now, artists would like to take that burden away from them, but it's not possible, and especially if they don't have label support, it's not possible just in terms of what they can afford. So there must be a, an educational component to what you do as well to show them what to do. Yeah, I mean, look, the best case scenario for my company working with an artist is they leave us with a, a bunch of relationships and know-how, and then they, they you know are on their way to being in the black. I mean, that's that's a successful launch for us is when they don't no longer need us, which is, you know, as a business person is sort of a drag, but it, it's, it's, um, it's really nice to watch. But yeah, I mean, for people who can't afford it, it's, it's such a catch-22. It's, you know, like go get an agent who's going to take 10% of the nothing you make in, in clubs. And, you know, I guess if it was easy, everybody would do it, though. Who's your typical client? Uh, I don't have one. Uh, honestly, I get, I get people who don't want to be associated with the majors anymore. People who feel like for, uh, my fees rather than a percentage that they have a better shot at, um, self-releasing quote unquote. Uh, and then the other side of the equation are people who are looking to get into the major labels, people who are really just starting out and who don't know much about the business. Ironically, I don't get a ton of mid-tier artists because they know a considerable amount of the things I know, and they're current, um, whereas major label artists aren't current, and um, artists just starting out you know, need the education. So it, I, I fall on the very high end of the spectrum and the very low end of the spectrum, or I shouldn't say low, that sounds demeaning. I, I guess I mean just starting out. 
You know, what's interesting is that there's still that house on the hill. Everybody wants the label deal when you're first starting until you kind of experience it and then understand what that means for you. But that being said, I always felt that record labels hold an especially powerful place in that may not need them for a long time, but when you want to go from being well-known to a star or a star to a superstar, they have the infrastructure and, and you can't really reinvent the wheel on that. Am I wrong there? No. Um, sort of to address the first point of that, the house on the hill, I mean, it it is very validating. And when we were wooing artists, we would take their existing artwork and slap the Atlantic Records logo on it and to see your creation with the same logo that Zeppelin had was, you know, an unbelievably powerful thing. So I don't blame people for, for wanting that. I mean, look, it's great if your friends and family turn out on your show, but when a record company president who's involved with many major successful acts shows up, it's, you know, it's incredibly tempting regardless of where you are in your career especially if you're a young musician, as many are. As for the second part of your question, you know, I think a lot of people who are upset with labels are artists just starting out looking to get huge. And I think what major labels are, to your point, they're about the same as as everybody else minus budget. When you take away budget as making a small artist medium-sized, but they're the only game in town for taking a a medium-sized and the black artists to superstardom. Because you just you just don't get there without uh, the radio department. You just don't get there with without the leverage. It's like, well, if you want an appearance by Bruno Mars, it's your fill in the blank. Then you have to support my new artists, whoever. So, yeah, um, if you're looking to be successful in the music business, that's one conversation. If you're looking to be a celebrity or you know a, a massive superstar, that's that's a completely different conversation. Okay, all that being said, where do you feel that the music industry is going? And I say this because it's constantly evolving. And right now we're on the cusp of another evolution, I think, as now streaming has taken over for sure, and we're seeing physical product really declining, not as quickly as everybody thought, but it, but it is declining. But there'll be a certain point in time where that won't be making money, and it makes half the money now for a major label. So... Where do you see things going? Will there always be a physical component? I mean, I think audiophiles will always gravitate towards vinyl. I don't see vinyl going away anytime soon. I think there will have to be something that people take away from a show that's not necessarily a t-shirt or a tote bag or a pin. And this will probably be the lamest answer you've ever gotten on your any guest on your podcast. But I mean, I, I, have, I have not a fucking clue. Like, it, it's... I would have never predicted that we'd be 10 years later and it would be something called Instagram and, you know, where where would be MySpace? And before that, like, you know, mp3.com was going to bring down the entire business. Like, if I've learned anything from being in longer and longer, it's that I wouldn't put 90% of my chips on anything. It's just um, certainly streaming is around to, to stay. But I look at Spotify uh, and I look at them being in a massive amount of debt. I was told, I didn't read, so I don't know if it's accurate, but I mean, Apple Music apparently now has more subscribers than Spotify, um, you know, paid subscriptions. Um, Did you read that as well? Yeah, that's only in the United States. Right. Yeah, biggest music market there is. So, I mean, I just, 
it's a really long-winded way of saying I, I, I think streaming is going to stick around. I think audio files will always gravitate to a, a physical format that they just can't replicate or can't replicate yet on streaming. And, and I think, although less and less, although you know people are spending their money more on experiences, I still think there'll be a percentage of the population who will want, and ex- in extreme cases of fandom, they'll want something to hold. Is there something that's going on under the radar that most people aren't aware of? There's certainly things that you know that I'm not privy to. I'm I'm, I'm sure. Um, I I think the thing that's most interesting about the music business is the accounting. Um, and you know that sounds so paranoid and and petty, but. I think if we ever come to a place where there's full clarity in accounting, which I don't think we will because anybody who's in, in, in the position to change that is not incentivized to do so, I, I think the way accounting works and how people are rounding pennies is, is what's not discussed and in many cases not known even by some of the people juggling the numbers themselves. That's, I, I don't have first knowledge of that, uh, first-hand knowledge of that, but that's, that's the sense I've always gotten whether I was inside or outside. It's pretty interesting now because you would think that it would be easier considering the digital age that we live in and how there's so much more data available. Much of it is very much more transparent than it used to be. So you'd think that wouldn't be the problem that it still is. Like I said, I mean, I think if you're one of the handful of people who is in a real position to change that, the way you're currently making money is better for you. Yeah, you're right. You know, I mean, people talk about the the full clarity of blockchain and I think Who's going to sign up for that that's, you know, that has a business that's partly based on float, that has, that has a business where people approach them for a catalog and when that's, uh, those advances don't, when those companies don't come through, the advances sit there and are not dispersed to any one artist because there's no way to track that. I mean, accounting is a funny thing in the music business. And I think also, as is not surprising to you, it's, they made it really complicated. I think if you look at all the way back, like if you read Hitman, you know, if you read like the origins of, of, of this business, I, I think it was deliberate. Yeah, yeah, right. Founded by, by gamblers and thieves. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you, you mentioned about blockchain and it's been around for a while and people have been pitching blockchain solutions for what, at least five years, if not longer. And if you take notice, no one in the music business has jumped on that, which just goes to prove your point, exactly. They're evangelists. They're certainly, and you know, look, I believe it in it as a technology. I believe it in it as something very powerful. But I think, I think like a lot of things that took the world by storm, um, people without understanding ran into, rallied around um, blockchain uh, without having a full understanding of what it even is, except that there's uh, enormous amount of clarity and an enormous amount of tracking um, ability th- uh, with multiple parties. And beyond that, labels have gotten more sophisticated. Large companies, large music companies in general have gotten more sophisticated. But there's a surprisingly small number of people who fully understand how the money flows. And to be honest, like, I know more than most, but I mean, I I don't envy accountants in the music business. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if everybody all of a sudden saw exactly what they were owed and petitioned uh, major companies for what they were owed in real time, I just think it would break. Wow, this is a cynical conversation. I didn't mean to go there. But, you know, but <laughs> yeah. The underpinnings yeah. of, of the accounting are, are fascinating to me. And I, I in, in saying this, this is certainly just my opinion, but my observations lead me to believe that that's true. 
One of the things that I've always found is that musicians are really unaware of the realities of streaming income, streaming revenue. And they think in terms of millions instead of now we're in the billions. So it used to be a million of anything was a lot. And now, you know, a million might get somebody kind of interested, but it's usually 10 million or 50 million that suddenly gets people excited. It's really difficult, I've found, to have musicians move away from that concept, scale up their expectations, so to speak, or scale down. Have you found that? Have you found that you must have a certain amount of education that goes into to telling people about that and what to expect from streaming and not to expect, especially if you're on a songwriter side? I mean, there are certainly more educated people than I am on the subject of how much you're collecting per stream. And I mean, that, that information is out there. I, I don't know it as well as a lot of people because I don't have skin in the game. My, the way my business functions, I let people handle their own accounting. I don't want to be a, a, a part of it. But I think my realization is I, I think artists, when you're talking about millions and the perception of, of platinum, which you now need, you know, a quantum calculator to figure out, like, you know, what the hell that even is. I think the, some of the disconnect around those figures is you'd be shocked how many artists you've never heard of have 10 million streams on something. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was doing some consult. I mean, because my, my company's boutique. I mean, I, I, I handle a few dozen artists a year. Um, but I was consulting for uh, a distribution company, doing a lot of marketing for them. And, and just looking at the volume, there's just there's just all these people out there with, you know, half a million Instagram followers and half a million YouTube subscribers and, you know, tens of, of millions of streams. And not not that I'm the target demo anymore, but, you know, when, when I would call up <laughs> the youth that I employ to make sure that I'm current, it's like, do you ever, do you know who this is? No. There's just, there's just so many mid-tier artists now that millions, to your point, don't, don't mean what they used to. Yeah. Okay, last question, Rick. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Um, when I started my own business, somebody said to me, congratulations, you get to pick which 18 hours a day you work. And being a musician is being in a business for yourself. And if people go into it with that expectation that it's, it's sort of that life consuming, life consuming task, then I, I think they're better prepared for what's coming. You can find out more about Rick and his services at musicconsultant.com. That's all one word, musicconsultant.com. Thanks for being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, Go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or go to bobbyownercircle.com or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bobby.